What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your year-end lists. List season continues. This is Pat Sheehan with my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, TV today, dog. How you feeling about it? List season continues, sir. And television, watched a lot of it this year. It was one of the easiest things you could do in 2020, no no question. Yeah, if, if one medium really uh, thrived in... Uh, quarantine and during the pandemic it's got to be tv um i think the the only real drawback is we didn't get some shows premiering that we were hoping for you know succession a notable one Mm -hmm. but um you know all the stuff that was already in the can or things that got to just be edited or worked on uh post-production that came out uh i think really added up to be a very strong year for television uh when i was making my my top 10 list i was I started off by just kind of like writing down all the shows I really liked. And it was like a list of like 20 to 25 shows right off the bat. And I was like, right. man, this is going to be tough to whittle back down. Um, and it was. So we'll, we'll be talking about all those shows. Hit that subscribe button on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod or SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod. Or follow us on Twitter at NostalgiaPod before we jump into our lists. Dave, did you feel like this year in television was... A strong year, a good year, okay. I feel like I always say it's a strong year. Like I never feel like I'm lacking in TV options and good TV options at that. But yeah, this year in particular, uh, it felt like I had more than ten good shows that were top ten worthy, you know. And it that was pretty evident uh, just a few months in. So yeah, no question. I think it was a really good year. Yeah, I think the one of the things that helps tv right now as we kind of are post peak tv age but tv quality is still really high is how the medium continues to kind of evolve um away from uh traditional long seasons to shorter seasons uh mini series um played a a huge role and we'll we'll be talking about at least one maybe two on, on my list um probably get to a couple on yours as well um and even shows that are more serial or have multiple seasons or are telling a story, um, they aren't going on forever. There seems to be like structure to them, you know, beginning, middle and end. The stories are being told completely in a couple of seasons, which I think helps the uh, quality of what's being made really um, shine. So it's, it's interesting to kind of look back at when we considered peak TV and things felt like they were, you know, going on multiple seasons at very high quality. And now it's like we get a one-off season. And it's just really, really good. And we can kind of move on to the next thing. Yeah. I, I, I'm i no problem with that. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Um, any, any trends you noticed this year or anything that stood out to you from the shows you liked? Yeah. I don't know if there was any stark trends the way there are in music and movies um, because TV got to largely exist. Um unchanged at least for the consumer perspective the viewer perspective um and we got more streaming services right like uh peacock launched um apple tv plus's first full year right disney plus's first full year tv side of things the newer stuff didn't make as big of an impact i'd say with a few obvious exceptions like the mandalorian um so that's obviously something to watch you know we know um CBS All Access being rebranded as Paramount Plus, and that's going to kind of be blown up by Viacom. So, you know, the streaming war stuff, uh, I don't know if we had like any like unexpected developments beyond like the previously covered HBO Max news regarding the Warner Brothers movies and, of course, the death of Quibi. But um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, TV seemed to just kind of keep plowing on through and i guess the lines between tv and movies certainly blurred this year as the majority of movie watching experience was done in the home on demand on on streaming however it was done um and leading into that you have the conversation about small acts and whether it's a anthology tv series anthology film series uh you go on place like amazon where the show lives and it's listed as both movies and TV at the same time. And it's like, what does this mean? Does this even matter? 
to me, I'm like kind of a formalist with how I compartmentalize that stuff in my brain. So it definitely uh, makes me go through mental gymnastics. But I think to most people, they don't really care what something is. They just hope it's good and worthy yep. of their time, you know? Yeah, small acts has been um, one of the more fun debates. And uh, even, you know, we, we talked about it on one of our past reviews of one of the, the episodes or, you know, films. Uh, even Amazon doesn't even know as they're distributing it. They say, you know, this is season one, uh, but this is a film. So <laughs> season one of films, you know, it's really blurring mm -hmm. the lines and um, you know, we're, we're uh, going to be probably talking about tenant in some way on the year end movie pod, but um, you're starting to get these big distributors putting these feature films right onto your television screens and um, how we, consume these stories how these stories are being made is evolving and i think that that's exciting in some ways and, and sad in others and we'll be getting into the i think the sad part of that discussion a little bit more um moving uh, you know on our year-end movie pod but for now i think as we talk about television it's just exciting because not only does that translate to the way stories are told but the production level just feels really high on a lot of the shows on this list you know um, I think a show that's caught a lot of attention, I'm sure we'll be mentioning in some way, the show like Queen's Gambit. And you look at just the high level of production on that in terms of uh, planning out how things are going to look, the aesthetic, the costume design, the set design, the music. Um, it just was all really, really high quality, well done. And the more we can get that sort of stuff, the more we're going to... Uh, be moving away from the, the theaters and into our televisions if people haven't already been doing that. Um, so just really exciting uh, time in television uh, continues to be really good. Any other thoughts before we jump into our list in terms of television for you? Uh, no, let's get to it. So Dave, what's your number 10 then? Yeah, my number 10 is Betty. Six episode. First season on HBO follow-up uh, spin-off inspiration taken from the 2018 film Skate Kitchen, which I was a huge fan of and had on my top 10 films list that year. And it's a simple show, but I think it's really effective at what it's trying to do, which is just New York vibes, baby. Just hanging out in New York City pre-pandemic with this crew of female skaters. And watch them go through their lives. And yeah, it tackles some uh, heavier themes from time to time throughout the short run of the show. But really, I think the biggest selling point is just the, the, the friendship that the characters have and how, you know, watching them hang out together. And they're also actual skateboarders. So watching them just skate nice in the Lower <laughs> East Side is also just very appealing and, and easy to watch. So. Uh, I mean, we, we obviously we covered all these shows on our uh, reviews throughout the year, so check those out for more deets. But I think Betty is a probably under underseen show, relatively speaking. But uh, I'm looking forward to the season too. I'm happy that got uh, renewed. Yeah, I'm glad it got renewed too. And as you mentioned, it's it's a love letter to New York City in a lot of ways. It's a love letter to uh, skateboard like mixtape videos, <laughs> you know, in a yes. sense. And um, it really. Uh, I think as I, I look back on the year, it brought up, it brings up a lot of feelings of like sadness in a way, because it really just captures that, that feeling of like having a New York adventure where you're just like jumping place to place, going to these like cool parties or unique venues, um, running into interesting people, having a day where you're just like out doing drugs. Um, and it's, it's something we didn't get as much of this year or, or at all. And for some people, so it's, uh, Definitely a show worth tuning into is on my honorable mention list. Great, great choice for your number 10. My number 10 was a, another show that came out early 2020, and that's The Outsider on HBO. Um, you know, based off uh, Stephen King uh, story. Um, this was developed by Richard Price, starring Ben Mendelsohn, uh, Olivia Revo. Um, Cynthia Revo. Cynthia Revo, sorry. Olivia. Who's um, Olivia? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's just the, the name rhyming, honestly, that, that gets me there. But um, this this was a, a show that I think 
similar to something like Lovecraft Country, had some difficulty making everything tied together and fit really well. But the way that this was a procedural whodunit type show tying in the supernatural and especially um, you know making observations about grief and loss and healing afterwards um, it, it just really captured me and, and though I think the ending might have some problems and it it definitely um, you know uh, I think tailed out by the in the last episode or two the beginning of the season was incredibly captivating. I couldn't wait to watch it every week. And uh, I think this is one of the best performances we we have seen from Ben Mendelsohn, who um, well, I'm sure we'll be mentioning on our year end movie list um, in some way with another great performance from this year. Um, mm -hmm. he's, he's on a bit of a heater in 2020, uh, which is, is pretty cool. Um, so definitely a show I'd recommend people checking out if, if you like cop dramas, if you like procedurals if you like whodunits or if you want to watch something that's probably the uh i don't know the most like thoughtful um uh, show on grief this year so my number yeah. 10 i i agree i think the outsider we forget that was pre-pandemic that was that started in january like really like a few weeks after new year's um and even if like the uh conventional ending of the supernatural side of the the show maybe didn't uh, wow people as much as they expected it was still like really well done the whole time and well acted and everything so yeah it's a uh, just just missed my list in like the top uh like 16 for me yeah it's it was it was a great show dave what was your number nine my number nine i, I don't think you have this one I, I was a little higher than you is the new pope <laughs> no not on my list also aired uh like the outsider right around the turn of new years and the follow-up series to the young pope from 2016 was it or 17 i forgot 2017 i believe yeah 17 uh the palo sorrentino show yeah and the new pope gave us less jude law as lenny Bellardo, but man when he came back it was so good mm -hmm. and <laughs> it's it's just one of my favorite performances jude law has ever given it's, it's so awesome but it's a show that has so much style and personality all the way down to the, the opening credits that would change this, this season. It was the nuns raving, you yeah. know, with like neon lights and stuff. I mean, yeah, I, I think the stuff with Branix with uh, John Malkovich's character was a little more up and down because he was a very uh, uh, mellow, melancholy guy uh, as a character. But I still really like the personality. And I think of, uh, Voello is an awesome character and mm. um you know this will be kind of be a theme with a few more of my shows but when when, when there's like uniqueness that stands out because again there's so many good shows that are on and like i watched like 40 something shows this year and i have several that i still want to watch like when it, when it, when i can find something that's a one of one and it, what it's trying to do is done well that gets a lot of points for me so i like the new i, I really like the new pope still um and Palo is teased that they might do another one, and I'd say why not? You know, go for it. Yeah, uh, it's. Uh, I do agree. the The first half of the season was uh, not the most captivating TV. Felt a bit like a slog. But once Jude Law wakes up from his coma, uh, the show just completely takes off. Even the way that the the intro track, you know, the title track, it goes back to the first season's um, All Along the Watchtower rendition. It's just yes. like electric, you know, so definitely a show that I think thrives off of Law's uh, pre presence, but uh, Malkovich was a nice juxtaposition to him as two very different people um, in, in the same position. So definitely a great pick, probably in my like high teens, close to 20s. Um, but this is going to be probably the only show we did not talk about on the pod. And that, that's because I just finished it very <laughs> close to recording, but it's, it's called how to with John Wilson. So we're staying with HBO here yep. and this is a six episode uh, mockumentary documentary type show yeah. uh, produced by Nathan Fielder. Who, if you've ever seen Nathan for you, you know that he makes uh, outrageous outlandish weird television. Um, and this is, potentially the hardest show to describe for the reason that 
you start off with something very benign, you know, how to protect a chair or a piece of furniture that you care about, how to make risotto, how to split a bill. And it goes off in so many weird directions. It uh, really is amazing how it goes from piece to piece, but actually feels like um, it all kind of makes sense. And it is one of the funniest shows I've probably watched this year. We're going to be talking about probably the only other show I think that's funnier that I watched this year or later on. Um, but it had one of the best finales of the year where, um, you know, it starts off talking about how to make risotto for John Wilson's like 90 or 80 year old um, uh, landlord. And it ends up being, a, a captivating picture of New York City when the pandemic first hit and um, how things changed so quickly and what the mood was like, what the tenor was like, how it impacted people. So to have a show that could be this funny and this weird and this unique, and then to also capture a moment that, um, you know, was is life altering once in a lifetime type situation um, in the way that they did is just phenomenal. The episode's only 30 minutes and six episodes. You can probably get through it pretty quickly if you're interested. So highly recommend it. Dave, moving on, though, because I know you didn't watch that. Devs is my number eight. And I wanted to jump in and see. What is this on your list? Numbers seven. Wow. Okay. So we're, we're on the same page with this. Um, the reason I wanted to jump into this, because John Wilson and Devs, for me, are like the biggest juxtapositions on my list. Because Devs is like hyper produced. Like this is like to a T, like the most like specific show yeah, probably on the precise. List. Yes. And, and John Wilson's a, it feels a little bit messy. It goes in so many different directions. So I wanted to talk about this juxtaposition for me because I think it highlights just the range of television right now um, and, yeah. and how high quality it is in all realms. And Alex Garland, you know, Ex Machina and uh, Annihilation. Uh, Annihilation. Thank you. Um, obviously a well-known film director, but moving to TV to tell this story about i don't know like do we have choice is there determinism is like the key tenant of a sci-fi television show exactly successfully it's it's uh just really remarkable and even though i think the story was a little bit confounding at times and uh you know didn't always tie tie in nicely to what they were trying to say the visuals the moments the overall like tenor of this season um, was just really, really impressive. Tell me what made you put it at number seven. Yeah, uh, similar to the New Pope, but even at a, a stronger level. Debs is one one man's vision. This is all Alex Carlin. And to have such an effective, I think, engrossing sci-fi experience without some obvious like spectacle and showy scenes and moments, uh, I think is is very compelling and um like you said i think uh the actual plot of it all is certainly up and down but it's really kind of besides the point it's really just about those overall themes that you 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 stick with you and you continue to think about and um you know i think probably the biggest weak point would just be uh the lead protagonist lily played by sonoya mizuno lily is kind of uh I think under it just is not as interesting as other parts of devs. So that's just kind of a weak point. That's just uh, part of the way the character is written, but the everything around like the, the, uh, what was the company's name? Ava? The, yeah. Yeah. Everything around Ava and, and the devs oh, Amaya, program. I'm sorry. Amaya. Amaya. There you go. Yeah. yeah the name of uh, the daughter. Right. Um, everything are like, it was such an engrossing sci-fi experience from the start. And with the production values are so awesome. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that's the thing about Alex Garland. It's like he he has such ambition and also technical like grace to back it up. That even if like something's not ten out of ten, you just give it a lot of credit because he's always trying to do new things. And again, it's original, completely original. Yeah, he he gets these really interesting performances of these like tech, uh, I don't know, gurus or geniuses you know you think back to oscar isaac and ex machina and how he played Mm -hmm. this like creepy kind of lost his mind type like genius and you get the same thing with nick offerman although i I think this is where the tv uh of it all kind of 
allowed to flesh out a character like that and really understand uh, how Offerman became this person obsessed with, um, you know, determinism and creating this machine where he was able to like look back and potentially like uh, see things from the past. And, you know, there are, there are just some moments in this where, you know, they're, they're looking at the devs machine and they're, watching Marilyn Monroe has sex with um I can't remember who it was Joe DiMaggio I think <laughs> it was something like that and then they they listen to Jesus on the cross and yeah. it's just like these really like uh things that kind of like blow your mind to think about and even though we're seeing like obviously them on a television show it's just like very it's just a very cool show to watch in general I guess probably the like like we said the most like precise and like hyper focused show that we have this year definitely so dave that was my number uh seven so i know i jumped ahead of you in line tell me what you had at number eight number eight that was my number eight i'm sorry you're number seven right so number eight for me is mando wow credits will do fine mando i had this at number three let's talk about that and that's the thing i think 2020 is a really strong year Mm -hmm. and (laughs) i think making a top 10 says a lot because it's not an indictment to be number eight on my list, you know, no. but I think the reason I had Mando at say eight versus little uh, lower down is I think I just naturally peg it for being IP mm. and also. Um, yeah, I think that's probably really it, but like Mandalorian season two is just operating at such a high level while also kind of being all things to all people. And we'll talk more about this on our season two review coming uh, very soon. But to to service like just making compelling TV like season one, you know, a lot of times in the Western mold, traveling around, doing quests and meeting characters and all that, while also delivering on some really deep Star Wars lore at the same time. And also looking amazing because of that stagecraft technology, the way they make this show. Like it, it, it was really just operating on all cylinders in season two. And it was tough not to be impressed with it. So yeah. we'll talk about more spoilers later, but uh, I was, I never, I never expected it to, to get to this level, but, but that's what happened. And like, you know, the, the future of the Mandalorian expanded universe is oh so tantalizing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the reason I had it this high is I think when we talked about the premiere, we talked about it. Can this show surprise us? Is there, you know, with, with all of the fanfare and being under this microscope, is there anything that can come up that's going to surprise us? And I think what I was just most surprised at is how it, it's the show about, you know, in, in the Western mold, this like journey to uh, find grogu's uh home planet or find what he where he's supposed to go in life um but it really becomes a story about a person observing their values um you know really interrogating why they live life the way they do and changing that to make a sacrifice for things that they care about and you know at you can take it for the the you know every week being this this you know western type you know, mission drama where Mando gets sidetracked trying to figure out a way to get to the next step in his journey and has to help people out. And that's just fun. Or you can kind of dig a little deeper and explore, you know, how uh, Din as the Mandalorian is Mm -hmm. having to change his beliefs, challenge the things he knows, take his helmet off, do things that he wouldn't normally do um, for the sake of others. And then you tie in some, I think a really satisfying ending with some cool characters being um, added in. You of course get baby Yoda being super cute. Um, And it it just all adds up to being this, this world you just want to go back to over and over, which is just uh, such an accomplishment. It might be my favorite star Wars IP since the, the original trilogy, to be completely honest. Wow. Uh, I mean, rogue one is probably the only thing that's really up there. And then of course the last Jedi is in the discussion for me, but um, I'm just really impressed by the show. It became so much more than I thought it was going to be, which is also no question gets the of the bump for me. So we we've done my ten through eight, and we did your 
10 through 7 now, Dave. So we're going to jump to my 7, which is What We Do in the Shadows. Ooh, nice. Um, the other comedy on my, my number 11. Um, and What We Do in the Shadows, you know, when we talked about the first season, um, we were, I think we liked it, but we were like, yeah, you know, it's it's funny, but it's maybe not the funniest thing on television. And I think pretty quickly this year, this became the funniest thing I watched. Um, I mean, there's just so many moments and episodes as I was thinking back to it, you know, whether it's uh, Colin, the uh, <laughs> energy <laughs> vampire, Robinson. Yeah, yeah, who who gets um, gets promoted. a promotion, yeah. and then oh, it's just like so <laughs> when he gets his like level up powers, it's hilarious or when matt berry playing laszlo has to run from mark hamill as the other vampire and uh becomes jackie daytona a very normal human bartender it's just like no other show was volleyball fan (laughs) women's women's high school volleyball nonetheless just um just really some hilarious moments that have stuck with me and i I don't think there's any other um show that really uh, or a comedy show that has made me laugh this much in the last couple of years. So what we do in the shadows very easily in my top 10, you had it at number 11, just missing. So I think it's pretty safe to say you should check this out. Um, Dave, number six for you. Number six for me is. Nope. The plot against America. Woo. I had that at five. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like the plot against America kind of, left the conversation after it came out i feel like i haven't heard a lot about it uh, in the critical sphere which always kind of surprised me because i was like plot against america is is another thing where the creator david simon is doing everything he wants to do like it, it's and in this case you know adapting the uh was uh, the philip roth novel and you know doing some tweaks to it but really having an effective adaptation at a brisk pace only six episodes but delivering it in such a way where it feels oh so of the moment and prescient, right? And um, yeah, it, it's not the funnest watch. Like you will have some dread in the in your pit, you know, pit of your stomach. Like when uh, they're driving down down south, for example. Yeah, to get the neighbor, right? Right, or um, like kind of like the end credit scene where yep. you see the ballots getting burned and stuff. But uh, you know, I. I as an adaptation that you can kind of like look into and see various um various you know sides to it it, it was so effective and anchored you know by a great cast like most simon projects zokazan's very good john turturro i think is especially affecting as you know kind of like uh an uncle tom for the jews for lack of a better phrase and winona Ryder also quite good it also gave us one of our least favorite child uh, young actor performances of the year in Sandy, a very uh, unlikable teen. <laughs> so, yep. yeah, Plot Against America, I think, because yeah, the it came out several months ago, but I feel like people are low-key sleeping on it when it comes to the list at the end of the year. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when you think about David Simon and just the level of quality of television that he makes, you know, obviously thinking back to the wire but you know more recently the deuce um it's i think it's almost just like his quality is consistent it's consistently just excellent and i think people kind of get bored of talking about it and especially when it's something that's like a mini series can probably get overlooked because you're just like wow that was really good <laughs> and there's not much more to dissect in that. Um, but I, I think you're, you're right. And this, the reason that I had it up so high was exactly for that prescient reason that you mentioned, this felt like a show that was um, making, you know, taking this very interesting story and, and, you know, fictional historical drama and relating it back to a time in our country when this is, you know, uh, not, not exactly the same, but there's a lot of similar beats going on. A lot of, things that just kind of leave you with this sense of dread and like oh fuck like how how do we change this how do we get people to understand each other's sides how do we uh fight corruption um and hate it's uh it's just so expertly done you know you really get a couple of key people getting some really 
cool ro- roles. Winona Ryder, I think, gets a, an interesting role for her. You know, especially we've seen her as like the hero mom in Stranger Things more recently, and then she gets to play like the exact opposite in this, which is yeah. kind of cool. Tutoro obviously is hateable but excellent, and um, it's just David Simon makes really great television. Like, and the worlds are built so so expertly and the production on this is just fantastic there's not, not much more i can say about it honestly yeah oh then production too for taking you back to 1940s new york tri-state area uh, also top notch yeah unbelievable um okay so that was your number six, six? Yeah. okay so my number six you had just pulled it up was the queen's gambit my number um, five so look at that we we just had these flip-flops we did um, not plan this no, we did not plan this. Uh, <laughs> the Queen's Gambit. I mean, we we talked about it recently. Um, Anya Taylor Joy just absolutely rising up the rankings, um, becoming a star. You know, and she already was on that trajectory. But I think this really solidifies it because playing Beth Harmon, this orphaned, uh, very withdrawn addict who is a genius uh chess savant and who's incredibly withdrawn and obviously tortured and very should be very unlikable and not a character you want to hang out with you just are totally captivated by her the entire series you feel for her you want to see her succeed you get frustrated when she sabotages herself or or is sabotaged by others um and Outside of that, I mean, looking at the the time period, this is supposed to be, I believe, the 50s into the 60s um, in America and then in Russia. The wardrobe and the set design is just like impeccable. I already mentioned this in our pre-conversation and um, just everything about this is such a well-done, expertly crafted show. Scott Frank and Alan Scott um, using... uh, Walter Tevis's original mm-hmm. novel just did such a great job making this show. Really impressive. Probably the, the surprise of the year for me. It was not something I expected to like this much. Yeah, absolutely. So f- to our credit, we did start watching it right when it came out. Mm-hmm. But I, I like we only really knew about it like a week in advance when Netflix started doing promo. And like I'm embarrassed to look back upon that because this was the second show from Scott Frank. Godless mm-hmm. was very well regarded. Scott Frank, of course, made his bones as a screenwriter, two best uh, screenplay nominations, uh, best mm-hmm. uh, adapted screenplay nominations for Out of Sight and Logan. And <laughs> there should have been more hype going into this. But either way, as you said, it, it, it is a little uncanny to think that what made Anya Taylor-Joy's uh, ascent to stardom complete was a show about chess on Netflix. Like... Because she'd been in many good movies, but not like any really blockbusters at this point, New Mutants aside. And like to, to have it be this show, it, it, it's just wow to me. And we know she's going to have a, a great 2021 too in the Edgar Wright film. But yeah, as you said, everything is working in sync. You have really specific production design choices and war- and costume design. You have really precise performance from from Anya because the Beth role and have being in a character playing chess. There's only so much you can do to communicate how you're thinking and how you're feeling. Cause there's not a lot of dialogue in the chess match. Right. And she was really a, an amazing choice for the role. Um, then you get other things like unexpected acting turn from Mariel Heller. Um, uh, Harry Melling of Harry Potter fame, continuing his character actor run uh, Thomas Brody Sangster. Uh, yeah. Showing up as an adult with that BDE, you know, like (laughs) there's so much to like about it. And it's awesome that it's a uh, uh, such a big phenomenon, like Netflix touting all its numbers that we know don't mean a whole lot. But it's without a question been watched by tens of millions of people, which which is which is crazy. Um, And it's also been spurting a huge chess boom and especially a chess boom for women, which is which is great, obviously. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, a total delight and unexpected for seemingly everyone. but. That, that I'm, so, I'm so happy about this was like the one show where it's like you know plot against america some of the shows i'm gonna we're gonna get to they had been at the top of my list for months at that point just because they were so high level and then queen's gambit kind of sneaks sneaks up on us in october and we're like i'm like oh well 
this is at the top too. So I gotta, I gotta <laughs> make some decisions. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, uh, to, to make chess look so cool and, um, riveting and also to, I think, make those matches, which, uh, can seem boring if you're not in it, but to like kind of play out like on their faces, you know, I think back to the, the, one of the final matches when she beats that, like, uh, old Russian dude with like the beard and the long hair and he like says that you are the best player I've ever yeah. played like that like that moment is just like you're, you're so triumphant and satisfying and um uh, just uh, the show is such an accomplishment real real delight to watch and if if you have time over this winter break and you haven't watched this this would probably be the one I would say to put at the top of your list because there's there's might be some tv shows we put higher on this list but um this is very easy watch and a fun watch and very interesting so number six for me was queen's gambit uh what's up what's up next for you dave because i think we already talked about your five right yeah five is queen's gambit for me so number four for me is mrs america on fx on hulu just missed my list yeah similar to plot against america a show that uh, unfortunately feels quite relevant despite being a period piece this one of course is based on a reality namely the uh decade or so when the equal rights amendment was uh in the process of being ratified and of course transition from being a lock to not being ratified and the decision to center this story around phyllis schlafly the opponent of the ERA, uh, the bad guy of the story, was quite ballsy, but really, really worked. And of course, as a result, you have in smaller roles coming in and out is, you know, story stories of Gloria Steinem and Shirley Chisholm and Bella Abzug and Betty Friedan and all these, you know, important titans of the women's liberation movement, and all uh, being communicated just by incredible performances and there's a a slew of emmy noms for the show as a result and i found it incredibly informative but also really engaging again despite the fact that uh you kind of see where the winds are going as you watch the show and you know it's not going to end well and you know seeing like the how the even in defeat uh barry goldwater shaped how uh the conservative movement got to where we are today mm-hmm. and phyllis schlafly's starting out as a fringe sect of things and then becoming the mainstream again it's all very uh unfortunately very familiar but the show another show it's just operating at a really high level has great production design for a period setting and it's especially littered with tons of great performances yeah is there, is there any performance outside of blanchett that really stood out to you from this show yeah i think it would be uh bella abzug's yeah. Uh, who uh, Margot Martindale as Bella Absug was was yeah. my favorite one. Yeah, Margot Martindale was just fantastic in that role. And, you know, especially when we've watched the Three Glorias and we've seen a lot of these characters portrayed in other ways to a less, uh, I would say, less expert extent. Um, sure. It just highlights the high quality of the show. So, right, great, a great choice. Well, and the Glorias was a traditional biopic movie about Gloria Steinem and. It's an okay movie in that regard, but Mrs. America not taking the biopic road and going a a different path clearly uh, showed why this was a story that was probably more at home on TV, but also by being non-traditional and kind of branching out uh, served its mission uh, stronger, better. Yeah. Um, Dave, I just want to say as we move on to mine, We've already talked about my number three, which is the Mandalorian. So I have yeah. a feeling we have the same top, the, the same three left to talk about. And my number four is normal people. I wasn't sure if this would make your list. Man, my I number mean, three. How, how very, could unfortunately, not? very predictable today. When you when you have a girl this ugly to talk about, I mean, you just you have to put her number three. Um, you know, we, we, we clowned a lot on normal people. Um or at least I did talking about how this is uh, the ugliest girl ever in, in this show. And meanwhile, she's maybe one of the most like attractive girls that anyone could ever probably meet in their life. Um, but Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Mescal, the way that they just totally transported into these roles and f- uh, 
brought to life this relationship that weaves in and out of each other's lives and um, at, at points is some of the, like the, the best hangs of the year just to like, I don't know, like lay in bed or like watch these people having a good time and like really connecting on a deep level. But at other points was like the biggest gut punch and like gut wrenching moments to see them like fall apart or fall into unhealthy patterns. You really just, you really just are totally bought into these two characters. And I think that just speaks to the, the level of these performances. And, um, you know, when, when I look back at the year and think about the shows I thought about the most, um, this is definitely up there for me because I, I just was rooting for them to get together so much. And I, I, I feel like I had so many conversations with people about why didn't they end up together? Or why couldn't they have just communicated? Or yeah. it, it just is so frustrating, but such a testament to how it actually um, like got you as a show. Like right. You in. Yeah. I mean, normal people, uh, which of course adapted off the side Rooney book, but normal people, the show, just commanded investment in its two characters, its two leads. And even if the uh, actual journey they go on is certainly frustrating, especially by its conclusion, uh, you're so invested that that's why it's hitting the way it does, you know? And when you anchor that with two star-making performances from Paul Meskel and Daisy Edgar-Jones, um, yeah, definitely something I thought about a lot. Uh, kind of a, a surprise for me. You know, I just kind of ch ch checked it out once I saw people like, oh, you should watch it. It's out. And it's like, you know, I, I didn't read the book or anything. Well, a lot of people did and they anticipated this. And I think uh, for the most part, it's uh, been very well received by fans of the book as well. And yeah, I mean, it takes a lot to, I think, command this kind of investment in just two characters relationship. And it also, I think, got a lot of uh, just uh, justly earned praise for the way it treated sex scenes. Uh, which were certainly uh, still like hot, but uh, also done very tastefully. And, you know, the presence of intimacy coordinators became much, much more out in the open this year, partially due to normal people. So, yeah, definitely a show I, uh, uh, man, I, 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 I wish we had more time to be with Connell and Marianne, but at the same time, it's good that there's no sequel to this, you know, and we'll get the other Sally Rooney book soon. But, yeah, yeah, really love yeah. it. You know, when I, when I think about this show, I think this, the back to a, a scene where they're at like a nightclub together and like, they're not like together together at it, but they're kind of just like, they're like doing stuff. And um, there's like a point when like Connell is just like watching, uh, you know, um, Marianne just dance and like have mm -hmm. fun. And then Marianne like catches his eye and they like, kind of like are having this like back and forth and like to capture that like tension, but like in such like a realistic uh, feeling way it, these characters just felt so lived in and you know kind of like normal people that I guess if you want to like bring back to the title but um, it just is like probably the best relationship like what well done relationship on TV and maybe two of the most like well thought out and, and shown characters on television this year so um, normal people is my number four uh, Dave do we talk about your, any of the ones in your top three yet? Yeah, Normal People is my number Normal three. I just three. have my yeah, top okay. two left. And my number three was The Mandalorian. So uh, I'm going to guess that it's better call Saul and I, I may destroy you left, right? Correct. What do you have in number two? Number two for me is Better Call Saul, season Same. five. Yep, that's that's correct, sir. <laughs> yep, and it was number one for most of the year for when it came out in April onward until... I mean, sure, it came out at the end of the summer. And Saul, uh, with season five, really unified. It's Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul spheres. You know, the prequel show has really in earnest come to meet the original show that it's quickly pacing to, you know, con uh, connect with. And in doing so, yeah, you get that continued evolution of Jimmy McGill into Saul Goodman. But most importantly, the best aspect of Better Call Saul, and probably the best reason why you can make the case of Saul's superiority to Breaking Bad, would be the continued evolution of Kim Wexler, played uh, with sheer excellence by Ray Seahorn, which still, for some reason, has not earned her a Emmy nomination. Really, do yeah, not understand no. that. But yeah, uh, you know, Vince Gilligan 
we, we, we know what he's good at, but like it, we talked about precision with Alex Garland. That's like technical precision. That's vibe precision playing with genre. Vince Gilligan, that precision is writing. And you really can't do better than him. And there were so many moments in season five, like when uh, Lalo shows up at the apartment, stuff with Mike. So many moments where you kind of have a sense of what will probably happen, what the end result will be, but it never happens the way you actually expect. And it just, there's just a certain tension that's just underneath the surface with Better Call Saul. And because we know where a lot of this is going through the Breaking Bad, right? Um, And, you know, you introduce a new villain with Tony Dalton or, you know, give him. Uh, you know, starring screen time this time anyway. Um, Lalo and Lalo was, you know, just I think you know, iconic in a sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, like along the way, you get familiar stuff like hanging out with Mike and Gus a little bit more. Nothing really new there, but yeah, I think this th- this is the best season of Better Call Saul to this point, and it's, it's it's a it's a writer's show, but the acting is also top notch uh, yeah. with the two leads. So. You can't really say enough good things about the show without just kind of spinning your wheels. We've said it a lot at this point, but it's well-earned. You know, as I've been thinking about what's really setting Saul apart from Breaking Bad for me, and don't get me wrong, Breaking Bad's still like a top 10 show of all time for me, and Saul is probably right around it. Um, It's the juxtaposition of Rhea Seahorn's character as Kim Wexler versus... um, the wife in Breaking Bad, and I'm blanking on her name at the moment. Um, but in Skyler, Skyler, right? In in Breaking Bad, Skyler, I think has like a brief period where she becomes aware of what Walter's doing and kind of is like feeding into it and like with mm-hmm. it, and then quickly like pushes back against that. And that for a lot of people, that became one of the the things they liked least about the show was that this person wasn't, you know, kind of just behind what Walter was doing, even though it was totally maniacal and uh you know absolutely narcissistic and sociopathic it uh in a lot of ways Skylar was doing the most responsible thing in the entire show um and to see Rhea Seahorn who for so long has held this standard of like dignity and moral and like not going to fall into Jim like uh you know slip in Jimmy's trap or whatever it is mm-hmm. and then this season you start to see the cracks you know like that that scene where she lays out how they're gonna get uh Howard and then you know Saul's kind of like are, are you serious are you really like thinking that and then she gives him the finger guns and like walks yeah. into the bathroom and like it, it's a it's a small moment but something like that just like it's like a total gut punch because you start to see how Saul is so toxic and it's just totally destroying everybody around him in, in a way. Um, and, you know, I, there are maybe some more flashy moments. You know, you mentioned the Lalo confronting them at the end of the season scene. There's mm-hmm. the whole like shootout in the desert and the oh, yeah. trip back with Mike and Saul, but it's those real like personal relationship moments that I think make this show um, the, the, rival to breaking bad and just in terms of absolute success and, and craft. So uh, like you said, can't say enough good things about it. Um, but um, if you're not watching Saul, if you've been reluctant or if you just couldn't get through like the first like season or two, like I highly recommend you give it another chance. Cause once you get past like season, like past like one and a half, you're really into like the meat mm-hmm. and bones of the show. So it'll only enhance your appreciation of breaking bad as well. Like there's no downside to getting in the Saul world. Definitely. Okay. So our number ones then are, I may destroy you from Michaela Cole, another HBO show on our list mm-hmm. and um, BBC, BBC, right. Um, Both. I watched on HBO, I guess I'll say. Mm-hmm. And Copro. Michaela Cole being a creator that we were aware of, but maybe not totally invested in. Yeah. This show basically, I feel like makes her must watch whatever she does next, whether it's movies, television, whatever she decides to create, because the way that she takes, I may destroy you and takes this drama set in London and makes such a modern show that, expertly explores and makes you examine 
in ways you never would have topics of consent and sexual assault and use of social media and I don't know, a ton of other topics, I feel like. Yeah. Um, and to make it not feel heavy or weighty, but something you want to come back to and want to sit with again and want to explore, it, it felt like the needle she was trying to thread was incredibly small and she she just nailed it. And um, the the aesthetics of the show, the colors, the the shots, the way mm. she uses like pop-up screens of like text messages or flashbacks, sure. things like that. It's just all, it all works. And um, definitely the show I was most impressed by this year. And probably the one that made me think about things that I had thought for sure in, in different ways. And I think if, if a show is doing that for you, then that is, um, that's a success. So what, yeah, what made absolutely. it number one for you? Yeah. I mean, as soon as we saw, especially once it concluded, it, it was, I think just obvious that it was the best show of the year. Because it has a lot of the DNA of previous best shows of the year. It has a lot of Fleabag and Atlanta in it. Mm. And in the sense that it's tackling perhaps familiar themes in a really unconventional fashion that makes it impossible for you to lose your attention, right? And as you said, you're, it's it's dealing with some challenging, heavy themes that in general are not really uh, tackled on tv in the mainstream way all that often uh but in doing it in such a way where it's compelling while still heartfelt and, and real and it, it, it nothing is um you know fetishized or like exploitative you know and you know the arabella character is just so uh well well-rounded you know and like you go up and down with the temperature your temperature around Arabella as the season progresses right and I think that's a testament to Cole you know bringing a lot of autobiographical pieces to this story that she conceived and um along the way it's also a great London show you know just yeah. London hangs and you get that UK slang and stuff right and uh, all I really good supporting characters as well that make for i think strong you know b plots episode to episode while also fitting into the themes that we are following along primarily mm -hmm. through arabella so um we still have really no word on what michaela cole's next move is you know i quite certain i may destroy you is is a closed book there's really no upside i think to revisiting it it, it was so good as a season one but um also notably, I think 12 episodes, you know, I, I, that is the longest season of anything on my list. And yet it actually justified being more than, you know, six, eight, 10 episodes. Yeah. Um, another thing where like you think of television auteurs and you, we, we've talked about Garland, who's, who's new, new to TV itself, right? Technical though, or huge veterans like David Simon, but Cole um, is it, it, just such a, exciting impressive new voice that you, you season pass is obviously punch at this point are there any episodes from this show that stood out like stand out to you when you think about it come to mind first yeah well i think like you know halfway through when we get the stuff about social media and like doxing and all that mm -hmm. like it, it kind of comes out of nowhere like that had not really been an aspect of the story yep and then it adds another like really layered nuanced commentary and critique of another aspect of culture in addition to romance and sex and all that like i was like oh wow like it, it just added a whole other layer to the show just kind of on a whim in the middle of the season you know yeah so that, that's probably the one that stuck with me the most but like the, the, i think this show progresses too you get like more like uh fantastical elements right where arabella's like seeing like the like devil version of herself like upside down stuff like that mm -hmm. you know it's like so many great moments yeah, uh, you know, I've I've been sit I've been sitting and thinking a lot recently about the finale of the show, right, and how it it kind of has her like um, exploring three ways that she might go about uh, you know confronting this person who raped her and drugged her, um, and the choice where it ends up where it's just her with her uh, roommate who is like just kind of in the background of the show a lot of the time, very nice, very quiet um, person. And then to kind of like focus in on how he's actually like really depressed and alone and um, need somebody. 
and to kind of bring it back there because the character of Arabella is incredibly flamboyant. I mean, just boisterous and loud and does impulsive things. Um, and to juxtapose that at the end of the season against this person who's suffering silently, whereas Arabella is suffering pretty loudly, um, I thought it was just such an expert way to kind of tie the show together at the end. And has really just like left me thinking about how many other small things like that I would get on a rewatch. And um, I want to go back to it. I, if it, we have a bit of a dry period right now, so I want to catch up on some things, but if I can tune into a couple of these episodes, I'm definitely going to, and to go back to a show uh, when we're constantly watching new stuff, just, I think speaks to its level of quality. So yeah, I may destroy you um, easily, my number one. But I do have to say, I feel like the top two is really like a tier all of its own for me. Yes. In a sense, um, just in terms of quality. But what were some honorable mentions for you, Dave, that maybe didn't make our list? Yeah, so you mentioned two of them and what we do in the shadows and the outsider. I'd also like to acknowledge Perry Mason, which really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Insecure, which I thought really kind of put it all together as far as that show is concerned. High Fidelity, which uh, unfortunately was canceled after one season, but makes no sense. Really uh, delightful, uh, you know, remix of a well-known movie, like kind of like the uh, who asked for this? Oh, well, it's actually kind of good. And, you know, you know, Zoe Kravitz is just great as a lead. Who knew? Um, And then in industry as well, which just missed my list at number 12. Um, More than anything else, you know, has gratuitous sex and drugs, but um, and some nice London London features. But to me, that relationship between Harper and Eric, those two characters, was quite unique on yeah. TV this year. Uh, we didn't get to talk, or we both didn't get to talk about the, the end of industry, but I agree. I think that ending really ties the season together really well um, and sets it up for more, and it did get renewed for a second season. So looking forward to getting more industry. Um Outside of the ones you mentioned, uh, I want to say The Boys is one that I was thinking about putting on my list. Just uh, a show that I think takes a really interesting look at uh, superheroes and more so just like the use of like weapons in in our world today. Um, And it was a show I wanted to watch every week and and I'd never fell behind on. So I think that says a lot. You already mentioned Perry Mason, but that one really that surprised me as well. A couple of maybe non-traditional picks for our list um the last dance the uh michael jordan documentary series um you know i I didn't want to put it on because it was a documentary series and i think a couple years back we put the people versus oj but um everybody was talking about it like this was go this happened right as the pandemic started it was coming out and it was something every single sunday people were talking about which was a really cool uh moment in in a really horrible time of the year and also Survivor season forty. Oh yeah, uh, All Stars. Same thing. Just uh, absolutely wrecking shit, and something that I think a lot of people like rallied around together. So, um, some really cool like non traditional TV. Um, Dave, do you have disappointments? Your biggest disappointments of the year? I do. And when we watch as much much TV as us, naturally, there's gonna be things that don't uh, hit the bar. Uh, as far as new shows, I think there's a few obvious ones, namely Space Force, <laughs> Avenue yep. 5, and HBO's Run. Mm-hmm. Uh, Run, probably the most disappointing, because I think we ascribe the most uh, to it going in. And then as far as, can, oh, and Lovecraft Country, to a lesser extent, also kind of a late disappointment, just thematically didn't quite get to where I wanted it to. And then as far as uh, returning shows, um, these were shows already on the downspin, unfortunately, uh, but Westworld season three and <laughs> Killing Eve season three. Killing Westworld. Eve season three is just kind of tough to watch because that first season is one of my favorite seasons of TV in the 2010s. And the show has really kind of fallen off since then. Yeah, Westworld was never on the upswing. So no, that's uh, true. Yeah, just just maintaining quality there. Adding um, Aaron Paul didn't uh, do much. Yeah, or Cuddy, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, for me, uh, I had run and space force on mine as well i also wanted to say the third day with um jude law on hbo seemed like it was going to be a really interesting uh show and it was interesting but i just don't think really landed the way i I hoped it Mm -hmm. would and especially there was this like live like i don't know like thing that was supposed to go on for the finale and it was just like watching the village go on just i'm good on that um and then 
I also had, I know this much is true on HBO. You know, God, you got Ruffalo and uh, you're, you're thinking, and, and it got, you know, it got award nominations, but it's just, um, it was a really tough hang. Didn't he win? He won, didn't he? Yeah, I think he yeah, might have. That was the goal of the show. Show a double role, but like it was the toughest of hangs the whole time. It's hard to recommend. <laughs> the toughest of hangs. Um, any last thoughts on the year in television? Oh, actually, I do want to shout out one more disappointment. The Politician, season two on HBO. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, a show I thought I would think I was expecting to like level up a bit and just continues <laughs> to kind of spin its wheels. Ryan Murphy, uh, he's he's working. <laughs> That's about as much working. as we can say. Putting up shots. Um, yeah, any, any last thoughts as we wrap up our TV year-end pod? Yeah, I just want to shout out a few things I actually haven't seen. You know, watched a lot, but not enough. Uh, never got around to Dave and Rami on FX on Hulu. Or Rami's just Hulu, I think. Uh, I started watching The Great, which I really like on Hulu. Haven't finished that yet, but we got a season two on the way, so we'll get to that one in time. Uh, also wanted to check out Unorthodox on Netflix. I still haven't seen that. And 000 on Prime. Um, and also Gangs of London, the Gareth Evans AMC show, uh, the director of the Raid movies. I got to at least check some of the YouTube scenes because apparently the action is insane on that show. <laughs> uh, always more to watch. Um, and we'll be watching more next year. So subscribe again, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod and soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. So you can be hearing our reviews as they happen. Follow us on Twitter at nostalgiapod. Um, And I guess we'll see you in 2021.